You're listening to a podcast produced by the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies, the Centre for West European Studies and the EU Centre at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit our website at jsis.washington.edu forward slash cwes euc. Director General Environment, where he is coordinating the implementation of the effort sharing decision. And I may have a slide about this, or yeah, I'll explain. tell you what that means. I'll explain the lingo later. He has worked extensively in the field of international and EU climate policy, including the Kyoto Protocol's flexibility mechanism, so that was 1990s, the European Emission Trading Scheme, another important policy instrument that we should that we need to understand, and climate cooperation with Russia and Eastern Europe. For those of you who have not been on board of climate negotiations in the 90s, Russia was the point where we either made it or broke it. Because Russia by itself is a huge emitter. And if you were developing a system and a major emitter said, who cares, I'm not on board, your major international effort is going to fail. So the fact that Dr. Saleh was working with Russia means he is working with one of the most important players for climate change in 1990s. In 2008, he was a part of the team that represented the commission in negotiating the climate and energy package. Another editorial note, when it comes to climate mitigation, those of you who work on mitigation issues, you realize most of the mitigation really happens in the energy sector. That's where the most innovative policies are made. That's where the subsidies come from. So it's an extremely important link uh, between climate and energy packages. Um, he holds a PhD in environmental and energy system studies from Lund University, a master's degree in energy and resources from University of California, Berkeley, and a bachelor degree in economic history and Eastern European studies from Uppsala University. He's a 2017-18 EU Fellow at the Center for West European Studies and the European Union Center, University of Washington. He has lots of good information prepared for you. So while we are used to stop and discuss uh, at any point, I'll let him tell you how much he wants, how much he thinks we can interrupt him with questions during the talk and how much we'll do at the end. So thank you, Dr. Salah, for coming. Okay. Good morning. Thank you very much for the kind introduction. Um, I think this we already basically, you got that information about me, the background from Nevis. I might just add the last point here. Uh, the reason why I'm here actually is not only to uh, tell all the good things and perhaps not so successful things sometimes about EU climate policy, but I'm also here to do some work on my own and the reason why I chose uh, University of Washington is not only that it's one of the universities we do have uh, this exchange program with where we send a number of uh, officials working in the Commission or in the European Union institutions for half or one academic year to uh, five to ten different universities per year uh, but also because my topic is about uh, looking at what's happening on local level and on state level in the United States in terms of climate action. Uh, so I thought this would be a very good base uh, to start from. Uh, 
and I hope to use my time to meet people who are active here in the western part of the United States in shaping climate policy, climate action, climate mitigation. Um, an overview of today's talk, let's start with that. Um, I hope to cover today basically these five uh, sections or key parts of European climate policy. So I'll start out with an um, overview of European Union evolution of climate policy, uh, the climate targets and objectives that we have set ourselves in the European Union, uh, a bit on the progress so far, and then moving over a bit on governance, how we're monitoring and accounting for emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, and then round up with a bit on European Union and international climate negotiations. <coughs> and I tend to be slide heavy in my presentations, but the idea is that uh, you could use these slides as a reference, so they will be available for you after the talk today. So I might skip a few. Um, but basically, this is what I would like to go through. Uh, I think what we might do then, uh, depending on how, how interested and active you are today, so if there are any questions for clarification, something's not clear, you just raise your hand and we'll take that directly. <coughs> and then we might do a few stops during the presentation and catch up, you know, with uh, other questions if you have anything for discussion. So let's see if it works that way. Um, I think, uh, Nevis, you shared some reading suggestions before the talk. I don't know if any of you have had time to look at this book, Explaining Climate Policy. If not, I would say um, if you have time afterwards, I would focus on the introduction and the first chapter because it basically sets out the main ideas and how EU climate policy has evolved. And then I would uh, jump to the end. They have a, a nice section, which is a general good overview of international climate policy in Chapter uh, 5. And then they have a wrap-up in Chapter 6. And then if you want to go deeper into individual parts of climate and energy policy, you can take any of the chapters in between. The interesting thing with this book is that it had been written of those, my colleagues, my bosses, who have been directly involved in shaping climate policy. So it's a hands-on... Um, description of how you go about trying to do policy in a specific policy area in a very particular uh, set of international uh, setting, uh, the European Union, which is 28 member states. So um, if you want to go further into that, I th that's what I would recommend. And I can come back to the very end on other, give you a few other pointers if you want to uh, have more data about what's going on in the European Union in terms of emissions and climate policy reporting. You probably haven't seen the picture of this because I, I sent you to the URL link which has a PDF document, but what I sent you is the same publication. It's just not a Routledge book, but it's the EU report. Yeah, it's actually available on our website. Uh, so uh, it's easy to access in that sense. Uh, before I start off, may I just ask how many of you have been in the European Union or visited any other countries? Well, most of you, that's very encouraging. Okay, have any one of you been to Brussels, where I work in Belgium? That was lesser than, okay. So where do you tend to go when, when you think about Europe? What, do you, what countries do you think about? Sorry? The Netherlands. Yeah? 
Yeah. Okay. Well, as you will see, there we're now 28, or possibly 27 soon, but uh, uh, so quite a big number of countries, and not 50 states, but um, and as you will see, they're very, very different in terms of history, in terms of economic, uh, economic uh, GDP per capita, and so on. So it's it's quite a trick to to design policy in any area, I would say. Okay, so let's move on then. I think this is basically the main messages of today, uh, the European experience, if you like, um, that I will come, keep coming back to during my talk today. And I think you will also find many of these uh, messages, conclusions in the book I just showed you. Uh, I think it's important to understand that climate policy in the European Union has evolved very gradually. It has been something that's been uh, been worked on for 25 years or more. So what we have today is basically a kind of uh, uh, further refining of some basic ideas in the beginning and a lot of uh, fine-tuning. And we had quite a lot of time to learning from experience as well. So I think that's a, it's a living animal, if you like. Um, what is also very important to understand is very much in a way like the United States, I suppose, is that what you have actually in any given country in the European Union is that you would have a combination of EU-wide legislation that is valid for all the 28 member states, 500 million people, um, and you would have national specific initiatives. Uh, but environmental policies in general and climate policies, legislation, as Nevis just said, is something which is done on EU level. So it's one of the areas where we have the most integrated on um, EU-wide policy areas and legislative areas where we have the most integrated uh, uh, legislation and policies in the European Union. So that's important to understand. And one way why we've been successful in, in, in convincing policymakers and then in the end stakeholders to support these initiatives policies ending up in legislation is that they've been based on cost effectiveness and fairness. And we also try to apply a lot of market-based instruments. This fairness bit is very important, and I'll come back to that later. What also is a good story to tell is that we've been successful in decoupling greenhouse gas emissions from economic growth in the past 20, 25 years. So it can be done. Um, what is also an important message that I would like to stress, since I work a lot on that myself, is that our governance system, that's basically monitoring and accounting for greenhouse gas emissions, is built on a comprehensive and very solid, well-established system, bottom-up, where all member states, nations, uh, report annually on their emissions and a lot of other things. Uh, in that way, we get continuously updated information that also member states themselves trust and rely because it's basic based on their own reporting from their own activities and without having this monitoring accounting system it would simply not work it it's also linked and integrated with international accounting system under the UN framework convention for climate change um, Another important trend, I would say, is that climate policy, hardly surprising perhaps, but it's becoming increasingly integrated with other policies, especially in the area of energy policy. And um, climate and energy policy is now, since 
a good five, six, seven years, an area where we tried to work from the very beginning integrated, uh, in an integrated way when we're designing policies. And then finally, which explains why the European Union has been so active internationally under the UN uh, in inter international climate negotiations, is that we ourselves are a system based on multilateralism that we have tried out since the 50s, uh, after had trying out uh, basically war, uh, war and uh, killing off each other for 2,000 years, we finally decided that it would be better to peacefully work together. Uh, uh, if you think about it, it's quite, quite a serious step that was taken in the 50s. And we have now gradually evolved to a very sophisticated system covering not only the internal market, uh, the flow of uh, services and, and goods and, and uh, persons uh, across the borders 28 member states, but we also integrated our policies in many other areas. And of course, environment and climate is relatively easier to agree on in principle because most of the problems we face there are transboundary. And given this experience at EU level, of course, we try to support very much uh, this same kind of multilateralism on global level. Otherwise, we won't solve these problems. So through all my slides and different sections today, these key messages will shine through, I hope. Um, perhaps I start with uh, explaining a bit what this multi-level governance and multilateralism in the European Union is about. Um, first, you need to understand that when we decide on legislation in the European Union, it's a co-decision process where you have the governments from 28 member states involved through the, what we call the European Council, which is the representation of the 28 member states, and the European Parliament, which has 700, 750 directly elected members of the European Parliament from the member states. And they need to agree together, these two bodies. The European Commission, where I work, is uh, the institution responsible for monitoring legislation, uh, checking that member states are doing what they have agreed to. And of course, we have the right of initiative, which is very important. So it's the European Commission that proposes legislation. Usually, we do that after a long period of intensive stakeholder consultations, so with the civic society. And normally, it's based on some kind of European Council agreement, or perhaps some kind of statement from the European Parliament. So the political process starts very often in the two institutions on the first that you see on the first uh, line here, European Council, European Parliament, but it's the European Commission where I work, which is responsible then for design and propose legislation. And as we have done, when we have done that, when we have tabled the proposal, then it's up to these two institutions, the Council and the Parliament, to negotiate. We sit in in these negotiations, but we are not the guys who are deciding. These are, the decisions are made by the Council and the Commission. So it's a very interactive process. And very often you can have perhaps two, three years of designing, uh, consulting on the proposal before it's presented. And then you would have another two years uh, on, of negotiations in co-decision process before you have an agreement and then finally sometime before the act then enters into force. Um, 
And this split, then there is, of course, a split of competences, generally speaking, between national and EU level. And that is also very important because it has an impact on the scope and decision procedures. It has an impact on the scope of what we can propose from the Commission. And the rule of thumb, or actually it's laid down in the EU treaty, so it's more than a rule of thumb, is the subsidiarity principle. So basically, you should not do anything on EU level uh, that cannot be better done on lower level, right? So when you face problems like internal market, uh, external trade, and then more lately in European history, uh, environmental legislation, for example, then you have an obvious case of doing it on EU level because this, these kind of issues can best be solved on EU level rather than every single country pursuing their own policy, which might be then be conflicting with other principles of the European Union. So the first three bullets is basically what you would have in any kind of policy area in the European Union. So that's nothing special for environmental climate. What is special for climate policy, I would argue, is that we have this continuous interaction with global agreements and that legislation policy initiatives comes from scientific advice through the international scientific community, through the inter uh, intergovernmental panel on climate change. So whatever we would propose uh, in the European Union is based on what's happening internationally and ultimately what has been recommended by science, by scientists, and that's very important. So this is something that continuously then needs to be checked and compared and adapted on EU level to what's happening internationally. Um, finally, uh, another point showing that climate change has been become something solidly enshrined in EU legislation is that in the latest EU treaty, which is a kind of, it's the basic legal act a bit comparable to the Constitution of the United States, if you like. We now have, since 10 years, uh, introduced a climate change objective where it says explicitly that the European Union and its member states shall support international action for fighting climate change in Article 191. We already had environmental objectives uh, since the 80s in the EU uh, treaty, but then climate change was added. So it's something, it's how should I say, it's not an issue of discussion that we need to do it. It's just, it's something that is a fundamental part of environmental policy and EU priorities since 10 years. That's another very important point. And having this, of course, um, as the bottom line is very helpful when you try to negotiate and argue for climate, new climate action initiatives. So that was a bit, in a nutshell, how the EU works. Extremely simplified, of course, but so you understand the specificity of the European Union. Another uh, very important point that I think also was well highlighted in the book, which is the challenge of designing policies, is that there is an enormous diversity uh, between or among the EU member states. There are 28 countries. And if you look at the difference in GDP per capita between the poorest and the richest, I think it's a factor of five or perhaps even more. So some the poorest countries in the European Union are still on par with developing countries or the most uh, emerging economies, perhaps a better comparison, emerging economies. And we have some of the richest countries in the world per capita. And they have very different history. They have very different uh, economic structure. We have some countries which are almost totally dependent on coal 
for energy economy. We have some countries where they use very little fossil fuels for electricity production, if any. And you can imagine then the challenge of trying to convince 28 energy ministers or ministers of environment, and then they have to go home and talk to their cabinets, to the finance ministers, to the ministers of economy, and try to find something that is workable for all these countries. And I think this challenge should not be underestimated. Uh, and um, when there is a lot of things that certainly could be done better and more efficient in the European Union, but I think if you turn the argument around, if you look at the, the starting point with 28 very different countries, and some very old, some not so old member states, by the way, some very young democracies, uh, then uh, putting it, what we have achieved in that perspective is, I think it's, it's quite an achievement. Um, so that is the question that is, I think, we always have to think about in the Commission when we try then to propose a new initiative, is how do we best design this? Uh, so it can fit 28 different countries and perhaps more importantly be politically acceptable because all these ministers they have to go home and defend what they are about to agree or what they have agreed uh, in Brussels or Luxembourg where they meet regular ministers and if they can't do that then they will not agree in council. Okay this is another key slide because it shows how much it's always it always strikes me when I go back to this to see how much and how continuously it has evolved in the past 25 years uh, so in the early 90s the EU started for, was the first time the EU started to think about these things and can you imagine why we came up with a climate change strategy basically a discussion paper in 91 what would be your guess yeah Protocol? Well, not quite. It was a bit earlier than that. Uh, any other guesses? Because you had the 92 UN conference in Rio de Janeiro coming up, where the UN Framework Convention uh, was agreed. And the Kyoto Protocol, as you pointed out, that came a bit later, was the first specific protocol outlining emission reductions under the Framework Convention. So because of this international event, the EU needed, at that time, there were only 12 member states. So they needed to think a bit about what could we do. And the EU actually quite early, at least in the Commission, started to think about some kind of environmental tax or even an emissions tax. But as you will hear later, that did not work. Uh, so uh, what we instead managed to introduce a good 10 years later was an EU emissions trading system, which is basically, which was the first concrete EU-wide measure uh, that was introduced and we took a very big leap indeed because there was very no basically no emissions trading in any country the United Kingdom and Denmark had some pilot schemes but the experience actually was in the United States and if you remember if you have looked into the Kyoto Protocol the United States uh, pushed a lot for market-based instruments in the Kyoto Protocol uh, for example emissions trading between countries because they had some experience from sulfur uh, emission, emissions trading uh, and I think NOx system was already in place in the 90s as well. So the idea, you could argue, originally came from the United States but it has been applied uh, EU-wide in the European Union. Um, and we basically went from nothing to a quite sophisticated EU-wide instrument in one go after a lot of preparations of course. 
what I forgot to mention here, you will see also another key year is 96, because then it was decided on political level that uh, we would aspire, we would try to design policies so the EU could contribute to a limit uh, of two degrees global warming internationally. And that, again, this number uh, came from the recommendations from the inter Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And this two degrees aspirational goal that is labeled here, has we've stuck with it now for 20 years, so we're still, still following this when we design our policies. Um, and then you can see, if you then look at the last eight years or so, a lot of action. Uh, action has intensified. We had emissions trading, which covers only parts of all the measures in the European Union. Uh, we went then a step further to have a more complete coverage of emission sources in proposing what we call the Climate and Energy Package in 2009, setting out targets for 2020. I will come to that in a moment. And here we included then sectors that was not in the emissions trading system at that time, agriculture, transport, etc. Um, so the first step there, if you like, was expansion into other sectors. Then what you can see 2010, 11, 13 is basically two other important uh, movements, if you like. One is that we are trying to integrate uh, climate mitigation into general economic policies. This Europe 2020 strategy for economic development uh, was an initiative uh, from the European Union when we were hit by the economic recession to try to uh, streamline economic policies and monitor regularly what member states were doing in order to promote growth, jobs, etc. And then the targets that were set for emission reductions was incorporated in these strategic uh, objectives uh, as one of several economy-wide uh, objectives. So the main political point here really, you had a step to, uh, towards integrating climate mitigation into other policies. So not only the ministers of environment or ministers of climate and energy, as you have in a few countries, uh, were thinking about these things. From 2010 and onwards, increasingly other ministers, the whole government had to get active. And I think the, what I experienced as a official working in the commission is that around 2007 or 8, we had an enormous increase in the workload. And that was a kind of qualitative shift that happened from working in the environmental box, if you like, and uh, moving into all general policies. So now it was not only from 2007-8, about that time in Europe, it was not only the environment ministers, it was the heads of government. It was the prime ministers, it was the finance ministers, it was the ministers of economic development, and so on, so it started to engage. So the demand and on uh, us in terms of preparing policy briefs, etc., uh, increased enormously. But of course it was a very good, uh, good sign that the climate policy was becoming integrated with the key economic decision makers in government. So that is a Im very important, important shift, I think, about 10 years ago that you really could feel almost physically because the workload just increased enormously. Um, other initiatives uh, in the early 2010s was that the, we presented the Roadmap 2050, so we expanded coverage to other sectors. We started thinking about integrating climate policy with other policy areas. 
And then the next step was to start looking ahead, long-term action. And the Roadmap 2050 was an attempt to start a discussion uh, between governments, between stakeholders, on what could we reasonably do in order to secure very su significant emission reductions by the mid-century. Uh, that discussion did not pick up very much, I must say, but the, uh, and that was part, probably because of the recession, because just after this package 2009 was adopted and entered into force, we were in a deep recession. A lot of countries had very severe um, uh, economic uh, problems. And that, I think, overshadowed that discussion a bit, but nevertheless, this paper is a very good uh, background backdrop for the discussions that we have now coming back to long-term action. Adaptation is another area where we started looking to uh, f accepting that e even with mitigation measures we will need to start to adapt to climate change. And we have the two main areas I would say in the European Union, especially in the south, is agriculture and tourism, uh, which is already now being affected by, by uh, climate change and global warming. Next step was 2014. Uh, 29, we presented proposals for 2020. 2014, the council, the ministers, uh, heads of uh, state in the member states agreed that we stood, should now aim for targets for 2030. And um, this is um, what we've been working very hard on in my department the past two, three years. And last year, we presented a legislation package uh, with initiatives to cut emissions further in 2030 down to 40% compared, 40% lower than 1990 levels. So you can see here that it has intensified uh, both in terms of activity, uh, what actions have been proposed, but also it has been uh, become more comprehensive, more integrated, the policy initiatives through the past 10 years especially. So let's then just briefly recall what we have for 2020, what we have set ourselves. So again, the overall objective for all our action is to limit global temperature increase to two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. And you will see these resolutions coming back again also in the international area, in the Paris Agreement 2015, for example. So the novel thing in 2007 was that politicians agreed that we would start looking into not only reducing emissions, but also trying to do active measures in the energy sector to promote uh, uh, mitigation. And that was that a goal was set for renewables, to increase the share of renewables in final energy use in the European Union to 20%, and to increase energy efficiency, to make our economies 20% more energy efficient um, in 2020. Um, and there was, a, as I said a moment ago, there was a lot of activity picking up 2007, 2008. We had a kind of political momentum. And I think the best proof of that is that we proposed this package of, I think it was six or seven different pieces of legislation in January 2008. So we did it less than one year after the ministers in council agreed that something needs to be done. Uh, so in nine months or so, we had come up with a legislative proposal. It's a lot of work behind that, I can tell you. And we had agreement in this rather cumbersome co-decision process, um, 10 
11 months later, in December 2008, and it entered into force in 2009, most of these different pieces of legislation. That is extremely fast by <coughs> European standards. And the reason for this was that it was a very strong political support on the highest level. In 2008, the full, we have a system of rotating precedences. I will spare you the detail, but basically, member states take turn presiding uh, over the council meetings, ministers meeting in council. So they change every half year. The fall of 2008, it was France's turn. At that time, uh, 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 Sarkozy was the president. And they put in a very strong effort, also working directly with member states on a higher level, uh, to support an agreement. And we managed to get a deal on all these different pieces of legislation in December with the parliament and then with the council. So it was quite amazing. I think personally that if we would have missed that window of opportunity, it would have been, and had to go back in 2009 to negotiations, would have been you know, a normal procedure. That could have turned out to be very difficult because then people were finally realizing it had sunk in how bad the economic recession was. So it was a, a very timely proposal and very hard uh, and good work on highest political level to get this agreement. May I ask you a question before you move on? Yeah. The 2020-20 target, mm -hmm. is that averaged across, was that averaged across the 28 <coughs> countries in EU? So the average, or was there a commitment that every single country within EU is going to do every one of those 20 targets? Ah, now I'll, I'll come to that in a moment. So the trick, this is EU-wide. So the EU together, not average up, but the total uh, collective contribution, you should reach these three targets, right? For cutting emissions, improving the share of, increasing the share of renewable energy, improving energy efficiency. But then each individual country got individual targets. And, without, and I'll tell you, and I think the book describes that very well, how they went about, how we went about in our proposal. And it was basically supported, all the detail. Very few things were changed. Because sometimes the commission proposes something, and then they might say, no, we don't like this, and it's not enough support, and the majority of members don't like it. And in the worst case, you have to withdraw. In many cases, it's changed, sometimes changed considerably. Because after we have proposed something, it's in the hands of the chairing, chair of the European Council, which is a member state in this rotating scheme, right? So it's basically then up to member states, the Council, and Parliament to decide what to do with the proposal. And one reason why it was agreed so fast in this case was the fact that we had prepared it very well. Member states knew beforehand what was hitting them, so to say. They knew what the individual contribution would be in the proposal. And without this very uh, intensive and elaborate consultations bilaterally and collectively with member states, who in the end have to, you know, they have to pay for this, they have to in implement this, and with stakeholders. Stakeholder consultation is a much broader participation where you invite NGOs, individual citizens, different interest organizations that are not in government to have a say. And all these proposals are vetted in this way before they're proposed. So that's a very important reason uh, why we could agree. So I'll come to the details to, to give a more uh, detailed reply to Neva's question. Um, so what hit them in January 2008 was this. Uh, I think if I remember well, it was six what do we have, a six, perhaps seven even, proposals. The most important are here. It was a revision of the emissions trading system. You remember it started in 2005. 
it was a completely new proposal setting targets for member states to cut their emissions in other sectors by 2020. It was a directive, so a, a, a type of legislation on EU level for the renewable energy proposal. We had one for energy efficiency, and we had two that are not so known on fuel quality, where refineries had to uh, improve the share of uh, biofuels, etc., and CO2 limits for cars. And there was also initiative which was very strongly pushed at that time, where we haven't been successful, for carbon capture and storage. So everything at once. So several different measures that together would deliver these three targets. I will focus today mostly on the two first uh, proposals here uh, the, on uh, mitigation ETS, the emissions trading system, and the one what we call effort sharing, sharing the uh, emission reduction effort between member states. As and I think perhaps the second one here, it's the one that I concretely, I forgot to say that in the beginning, what I concretely have been doing in the past 10 years or so is that I uh, was part of the team negotiating this 2008 proposal in council and upon uh, my representative commission. And after we had an agreement, I've been monitoring. I have a small team in the commission where we monitoring member states uh, uh, progress towards the 2020 targets and in the past two years or so I've then been very active in the team that had prepared the next proposal 2030 that came out last year and before I went here uh, I was negotiating again then for the proposal for 2030 for a second time uh, so it's been a very intensive period uh, working on these uh, proposals on my on my half okay so the trick then, how do you get people to agree, how do you get member states politicians to agree then to a very ambitious set of legislation? So if we uh, zoom in on the two ones relating to mitigation, emission reductions, uh, the revision of the European emissions trading system that already had to been into place, uh, I'll tell you a bit about that in a moment, and uh, the new initiative setting targets for member states for how much they can emit in other sectors. Uh, the key there was that you introduced two principles, one of cost effectiveness and one of fair distribution. And fairness, or at least what is perceived as fairness, is a very important part of getting a political agreement. For the simple reason that member states are very different and they have very different economic power and the costs of mitigation are different in countries. Um, so uh, the way of doing this was to differentiate efforts based on GDP per capita because GDP per capita is a statistically reported number that was easy to agree on we can have this as the as the reference and then the targets were shared out between member states for emission reductions on national level according to GDP per capita also, the national renewables targets was partly adapted uh, depending on, on the economic uh, strength of the countries, but basically they were uh, based on uh, how far they had come in renewables already. For example, we have a country like the own, my own country, Sweden, uh, which has a very high share of renewables, almost 50% in their energy use and uh, electricity production. 
uh, whereas the country where I live, Belgium, only have a very limited, a few percentage points uh, when this proposal was tabled. And obviously, you can't ask them to, to uh, have the same flat target because it simply won't work. Um, another important thing, uh, recognizing uh, the difference in economic strengths between member states was that the emissions trading system where there were emission allowances, a right for a polluter to emit, uh, they were before 2009, um, oh sorry, before 2013, they were basically uh, shared out for free, but now an auctioning system was introduced. And by auctioning a part of the emission rights, you get revenues, and these revenues can then be shared among member states. And by giving the poorer countries a relatively higher share of these auctioning revenues, uh, they were convinced that they would get some additional support to do mitigation measures, which was also very important to convince them politically to agree to this. Cost effectiveness is basically done through what we call flexibility, allowing member states certain flexibility in how they reach their targets and market-based instruments. And there, the primary example is, of course, EU emissions trading system, which is EU-wide market-based instruments that we've been applying since 2005. There is also the possibility for member states uh, for meeting their targets outside the emissions trading system to transfer emission uh, uh, reductions among themselves. That's another possibility. So this uh, fantastic uh, figure here shows in how we divided up the efforts in 2009. So the important thing, you don't, don't need to get stuck on the numbers because we had to translate the overall 20% reduction compared to 1990, EU-wide, you remember, into a reduction <coughs> target compared to 2005 when we did the arithmetic and divided up the targets among member states. The reason for that was that 2005 was the first year where we had emissions data for all sectors, both for emissions trading and for the other sectors. Uh, so that was used as a reference in the internal uh, uh, division of targets. And so the important, I think there are two important things here on this. One is split between the emissions trading system and the sectors outside the emissions trading sectors, and you can see that these energy intensive installations under emissions trading system take the a higher share of the emission reduction compared to the other sectors. So that was the first split. Um, and the reason for that is that here you have one emissions trading system, one instrument, you have energy intensive installations over the whole of the EU, so it's easier and more cost efficient uh, to do emission reductions there compared to a set of sectors where you have very different uh, types of emission sources uh, in terms of costs and in terms of <coughs> mobility for that matter. So that, that was the first step. The second step was then to divide this 10% reduction uh, among the 28 member states. And we did that by using this GDP per capita criteria, you remember? And here you can see very clearly how the overall EU reduction of 10% for this part, this chunk of emissions, which is a good 55% of total emissions of greenhouse gases. And this is then divided among 28 member states where 
you have a range between minus 20 <coughs> to plus 20 compared to 2005. So the poorest ones, Bulgaria, Romania, for example, they were allowed to increase or limit their emissions increase to 20% compared to 2005, right? Or Bulgaria in any case. And the richest ones, Luxembourg, Denmark, Ireland at that time, um, they had to cut their emissions by 20% because they were the richest per capita. Um, and again, I think the difference in GDP per capita is in the order of magnitude five times between the richest and poorest, or was uh, in that time. I think we, it was based on 2005, 2005 or 2007 GDP per capita. So it was before the recession. So you can imagine countries like Ireland, that was very hit by the economic recession among those countries that was worst hit, by the way. Uh, for them, it was uh, very tough, of course, to go into a recession and then have this very ambitious target because it was based on the GDP per capita in 2007. Nobody foresaw the recession at that time. And I can promise you that this country and some others then came back when we were negotiating 2030 using the same idea, uh, very hard on trying to get a different kind of, of target then because of this experience. But, you know, don't, no need to get stuck in details. The idea is that we have diversified, we have shared the targets according to the economic strength of member states in those sectors outside the emissions trading system. Whereas in terms of sheer emission reduction, at least until 2020, the installations, the sectors and the trading takes the lion's part of emission reductions. And by splitting this sector-wise and member state-wise, we managed to get a deal. Okay, so um, on the emissions trading, I suppose most of you are familiar with the concept. Uh, if you want to learn more about the specific nature of the EU's emissions trading system, which is a very interesting piece of, of, uh, to study, uh, it's the largest emission trading system in the world. There are, I don't know how many scholarly papers that are published every year, um, but based on the experience in you, and it's been a lot of trial and error. We have tried to improve it continuously. Um, and if you check on this link, as I said, uh, we will uh, share the slides with you. You can, you can get a lot of more detailed information if you're interested. Uh, but just a few uh, basic facts. We started in 2005. We're now in the third uh, trading period, which covers the years 2013 to 2020. Uh, the emissions trading system is unique in the sense that it's already agreed in the legislation that it will continue beyond 2020. It doesn't end. We know that it will go on. Uh, and as I said, we're just about to, to get an agreement on how the emissions trading system will look until 2030 as part of these proposals we tabled last year. About 11,000 installations in the most energy intensive sectors are covered. That means refineries, steel industry, uh, power uh, producers if they use fossil fuels, uh, chemical industry, cement industry. They are all in the system. Uh, and of course, uh, this is important because uh, we have an internal market. We need to have the same rules for all actors, regardless of what countries they are in. So that's the idea of the emissions trading system. It's been expanded to three other European countries, uh, Norway, Iceland, and I think the smallest one, uh, Liechtenstein, um, which is about, I think it's smaller than this campus, but it's still a country. Uh, so we have actually 31 members, uh, countries involved in this. 
And as you probably know, there is a lot of uh, now scoping and preparations for emissions trading elsewhere in the world, Korea, in China, uh, New Zealand, etc. Australia has been discussing it before. So it's, it's moving as an idea, as a concept, as a policy instrument. Um, the last point here is also very important, I think, and that is that we actually have quite a strong compliance system. We have a, a, a lot of uh, discussions on whether the price is right and that the emission uh, uh, allowances, as they're called, are trading at the price, I think now perhaps in the order of six euros per ton, whether that is too low or not. But you can see then fr that from the very beginning, the compliance system is very strict. So you have yearly monitoring and reporting on individual sites. And if you have less allowances in your, in your account, then you emit and run a deficit and haven't been able to cover this deficit by buying from somebody else, then you have a serious problem because you have a penalty of 100 euros per ton. So, so there are very strong incentives to meet your uh, individual targets as an installation. The other important part of the emissions trading system is that it's progressing gradually. The cap is tightening gradually, yes? I'm sorry, just one clarification question because that may be the key difference between US system and EU system. Allowances, initial allowances, mm -hmm. on the previous slide you called them, are allocated mm -hmm. uh, for free? They were in the beginning. And now we have, and that is perhaps one of the things that is always very intensely contested in the council and uh, between the parliament. Um, and that is how, what, what share of the allowances should be auctioned. We started out giving away them for free. That was perhaps not a very good idea. Uh, and we had a huge surplus building up in the first trading period. One reason for that was that in the first period, 2005 to 2007, uh, member states themselves were allowed to allocate. We only set a total cap for each member state. And then industries basically, to oversimplify it a bit, but basically they came back to the commission, this doesn't work. You know, why do I get less and, you know, this cement plant in that country get more? And they were, they were not satisfied with the system. So actually we had a situation where where industry came back to commission, you need to centralize this much more. So what happened from the second trading system is, um, um, and from the third especially, to, uh, 2013 to 20, uh, was that we were allocating centrally. The commission did the allocation. And that meant that also it was seen as a fairer allocation system because member states were not involved in the actual allocation process. That was one factor. So that we, we changed after lessons learned. The other thing was that just allocating everything for free uh, was not a very good idea because we, we missed an opportunity to give uh, stronger incentives to installations to actually plan and think ahead by having to buy certain shares of their allowances. And then we have had, I won't go into details, but we have had a lot of discussions that continue what sectors should get how much allowances auction, should there be any sectors that should still get free allowances, and in the end we still have a number of sectors that get free allowances, whereas an increasing share of the allowances are auctioned. Now, when you auction, you also have another advantage, and that is that you get revenues. And then you can do things with the monies, that the revenues from auction these uh, allowances. And these revenues are then distributed back to member states, and it's member states themselves then to decide. Originally, of course, 
we had quite ambitious proposals that they should be earmarked for climate mitigation, earmarked for energy efficiency, sustainable energy. And in practice, this is very much up to member states. So it's been the practice how they're using the revenues differs a lot between member states, or has differed. And the parliament is pushing very much for more auctioning, for uh, forcing member states to earmark in these revenues for sustainable energy, etc. Whereas the member states, in a good tradition, try to retain, of course, their initiative, their right to decide how to use this. So that's, that's a, a, a tug of war that just continues. But the trend is certainly towards auctioning more and more, uh, generating revenues, and also making it a bit more expensive for the installation. So they not only get allowances for free as they did in the beginning. And what they also see coming is this gradient. They see that the cap is tightening. And we actually have a principal agreement politically. We still don't have the final agreement on ETS for 2030 that the gradient will be even steeper until 2030. So the principle politically that the industry, the energy intensive industry, should take the bulk, the lion's share, the most ambitious emission reduction has not been contested in the end. A lot of discussion, a lot of industry, uh, lobby groups, etc. But it's very interesting to see that they have accepted this because uh, the EU is a trading block and we are very dependent on international trade. And it's, of course, a very hard sell to introduce a trading system uh, if they don't see the industry organizations that similar initiatives are happening elsewhere in the world. And I think it's become a bit easier for us, perhaps, to argue for emissions trading, given the fact that now other regions, such as China, East Asia, are uh, preparing for emissions trading. But it's still a very contentious issue. We still have discussions of what is called carbon leakage, where some argue, although as far as I've seen, there is no evidence of this. Uh, the argument would be that you would basically displace energy-intensive, dirty industry from Europe to somewhere else because of the price you have to pay for emission allowances, right? We have very little evidence of that, uh, if any, as far as I know. Uh, and one reason might be the simple fact that the, uh, the price of allowances has been quite low. Uh, we're not in uh, double-digit figures yet, and we would certainly uh, need and hope to be there by the end of the next decade in order to start triggering uh, action uh, into more energy, uh, sorry, uh, low-carbon investments in industry. And this is that brings me to this, this slide then, trying to, to uh, wrap up why we put such a focus on ETS, why the EU is very proud of what we have achieved, and you will see us presenting this uh, in many places. And despite the uh, difficulties we've had and things that needed to be improved, uh, it's still the cornerstone for climate action in the EU. Um, so you might then ask yourself how successful have we been in achieving these four first points. I think achieving emission reductions, no doubt, uh, because we set the cap and this cap is met. Uh, and it's certainly met more cost efficiently and we would have, and compared to a situation where we would have 28 individual schemes for these types of industries. Uh, we have ensured consistency with the EU internal market. Uh, so we avoided then distortions between sector and states. I told you about the first few years when member states were allowed to have a part in the allocation. That didn't work very well. 
industry didn't like it. Now we have a system that is at least perceived as fairer. Uh, the third point is a more long-term reflection, and that is to spur innovation, because if you put the price on carbon, of course, industries have to think harder about how to uh, manage their production uh, with less emissions, with less energy input. Um, there is mixed experience on this. The price, again, is not as high as uh, many had hoped when we set out the emissions trading system, so we still have some ground to cover there. And I would say uh, low carbon investments, also there the judges are out on that, the jury is out on that, because uh, we still have a relatively low price, um, but I think with a very ambitious cap that we have set now for emissions trading to 2030, uh, things will change um, in the next five years already. Uh, the political issues linked to emissions trading summarized what I just said uh, in the past few minutes in the points here. Uh, the challenge to protect energy intensive industries and still have them playing, uh, agreeing to be part of emissions trading. And the possibility for member states, a carrot if you like, to engage in this because they get revenues that they can use for sustainable energy investments, climate mitigation, etc. And of course, these two points, if they hadn't been dealt with in the proposal, we would never have had a political agreement. It's as simple as that. Okay, so that was about ETS. Uh, now I'm going to talk a bit on what I've been working on for the past eight years or so. Um, the other sectors outside emissions trading where it's much more difficult to implement an emissions trading system and why is that? Because these sectors are very diverse and they're usually small and in some places, some cases mobile uh, emission sources. So basically the rest of your daily activities as a, as a worker, as, as a consumer, etc. Transport buildings, heating your buildings, uh, food production, agriculture, uh, waste management and certain industries that are not covered in the UETS, perhaps less energy intensive sectors. Uh, forestry is not included in, in 2020. That's another important chapter. I'll see if I can come back to that towards the end. So, um, but the rest of these sectors cover about a good half of total emissions in the EU and from 2000 uh, in 2009, we agreed that from 2013, we would cover these sectors as well. So we have now a almost full coverage of emission sources running in the European Union with targets set, set for 2020. You remember the slides I showed you earlier. Um, the challenge here, again, is then that there are very big differences in cost-effective emission reduction potential. Some of these sectors might have estimated costs, three-digit numbers per ton uh, euros, say over 200 euros or something. Others might be much cheaper. Some might even still have negative costs. That is that if you save energy, for example, uh, you might actually earn some money by doing so, by improving the heating of buildings. So a very uh, different picture uh, compared on what sectors you look at and also in difference between countries across these sectors. And again, here you will find a link then where you have a very detailed presentation on our website on how this system is designed, how it works, how we monitor it, uh, emission uh, data reported from member states, etc. This is interesting, I think, because it could serve, if you like, as a model how you could design any multilateral system where you 
need to reduce emissions uh, in a group of countries which have very different uh, economic profiles. So the way we've done is that then we have a 2020 target, that's the key, um, to contribute to this overall 20% reduction in 2020 for the EU as a whole. These sectors should collectively uh, deliver minus 10%. Um, and as I showed you also earlier, this then in its turn is divided among member states compared to the economic strength. Um, so here we have a much less the regulatory approach is very different from the ETS, the emissions trading system. The Commission proposes targets, member states have individual targets, and then it's completely up to them how they deliver these reductions. We do not have any detailed uh, regulation or legislation in this decision. Basically just sets up member states agree to collectively reduce so and so much, and we have an annex where it says every member state has these targets, you saw in the slide, uh, I showed earlier. And then it's up to them how to deliver this, what sectors they like to focus on, how they do it. What they have to do though is very uh, strict monitoring and reporting requirements. They have to report every year. We check their progress towards the 2020 target every year based on their annual emission reports. And if they don't meet their annual limits and ultimately the 2020 targets, they have to pay uh, a kind of indirect penalty. Uh, in the end, of course, so there are sanctions for member states if they don't meet the target. So we have a quite strict compliance system. It's stricter than the international system under the Kyoto Protocol, for example. And by the way, here I might, might point out that uh, what we've done, I forgot that important message in the beginning, is of course fueled by what was internationally agreed. Uh, so we wouldn't have gone through all this legislation if we didn't have an international agreement. We had a Kyoto Protocol until 2012. We had a second Kyoto Protocol for 2020, which is still valid. Uh, and these were the drivers for these uh, uh, initiatives in the, and legislation in the European Union. Um, my point here is that what we then report as member states is then also reported internationally. So a country like France, for example, every year they have, if you like, a double obligation. They have the international obligation to the Kyoto Protocol and the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, where they have to report annually the total emissions. And then, since it's enshrined in EU legislation, they have an obligation that is presented here on this slide, where they also have to report to the European Commission. Uh, so we have, if you like, reinforced our international obligations by also laying it down in EU law. So if you breach that, you also breach, I mean, if you don't report or deliver international commitment, you also breach European law that you have agreed to. So it's a very strong uh, incentive and compliance system that we have set up to ensure that we deliver on an international collective 20% uh, reduction target. And then inside the EU, we have all these additional obligations. That is a very important uh, point. Um, so the role of my organization is then to monitor that member states uh, deliver on their targets and their annual limits uh, for each year, 13, 14 through 2020. 
Uh, if they don't do so, uh, as I said, there are certain sanctions, and then ultimately, as with all EU legislation, we can take them to court. There is a European Court of Justice. Uh, and But the whole system is designed in a way to try to avoid that any country ends up in a situation like this. The, the, the idea is that they should report regularly, and uh, by having annual checks and limits, they will progress uh, uh, in a timely manner so they will reach the 2020 targets. But basically, we set the targets, you report annually, and then hands off. It's up to member states to decide how they deliver these emission reductions. So very different from the EU-wide, totally harmonized emissions trading system for the energy intensive industry. Finally, what we do do on a on the EU level is that we give complementary support, if you like, through certain EU-wide legislation, which is very specific, usually stand technical standards, such as labeling for certain appliances in terms of uh, energy standards. Uh, we have the CO2 emission standards for cars, etc. And these are, of course, make sense to have on EU level because they regulate things that are used on the internal market. So. When it comes to these uh, very technical regulations, there we have EU legislation. But when it comes to broader policies and measures targeting individual sectors, transport, agriculture, buildings, that's up to member states how they go about to do that. Okay, so that was my first part. While I try to find the next slide here, any questions so far? Not something that wasn't clear? Okay. Then we continue. In other words, we have an ambitious system in place for 2020. Uh, we have an emissions trading for energy intensive uh, industries covering 45% of total greenhouse gas emissions. For the rest, we have set national targets where member states have to decide themselves how to reach them. We're now in 2017. There is normally a two-year delay in international reporting of emissions. So uh, it works like this. Every January, uh, every country has to report their emissions to the European Commission. And then we do a quality check uh, of the emissions reporting. They follow a standardized reporting format that is used and agreed internationally under the UN framework. So it's completely the same type of direct emissions approach that we use internationally. So you only account for emissions that come directly from your territory. So not indirect emissions from imports or anything like that. So it's the same as the international system. So we get these reports in the beginning of the year. They cover then uh, emissions up to two years earlier. So in January this year, member states delivered a big inventory report covering all emissions from 1990 through 2015. And then we have a team of experts and uh, 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 inventory experts uh, under the auspices of an envir European Environmental Agency, which is a kind of EU EPA, if you like, but they don't have the regulatory power. They have the collecting information power. Uh, so they are checked. If there are any issues, they are discussed directly with the experts from the member states. Uh, then we do a collective submission of the EU's total emissions and the individual member states' emissions to the UN, because we're obliged to do that in May. Based on these data, uh, we then compare if the emissions for a given year, in this case 2015, were higher or lower than the annual limit 
because uh, the member states then for the sectors outside ETS have annual limits for each year and it's a direct comparison that goes automatically and if any member states would emit happen to emit more that year than they are allowed to they can use certain flexibilities for a grace period to cover these gaps and if they still find themselves in a non-compliance situation at the end of the year when we do an automatic compliance check where you basically compare your allowed emissions with what you have in your account so if you have lower and lower or up and up to the limit you're fine and you can save the surplus to later years if you have more emissions then what you have emissions we call them allocations in your uh, account then you have a problem so it's simplified but it's quite simple actually uh, the idea so we have now done this for a number of years with this two-year delay and uh, so it might be a good point in time to check how well we're doing so we're doing well as a whole in very well in meeting our 2020 targets the EU is already below uh, it's uh, see if I have it here no I have that on my, okay then I have to come back to that later basically I think in with the order of 23% or something already now in 2015 below our 1990 mission so that looks good uh, there are however individual member states that might have problems by 2020 they're starting to grow again you remember that some of the member states have very ambitious cuts Ireland Denmark Luxembourg they need to cut their emission by 20% and they have reduced their emissions but they will have a challenge to reach these emission cuts by 2020. So that's where we stand today. But collectively, when the EU goes to the international arena and negotiates, and we can say that we are very well on track. Um, okay, let me see now. I think I only have five minutes left, right? Right. So I have seriously overused my allocation of time. Um, so I, then I'm going to do like this. I'm going to focus on progress so far, and then I go do a few reflections on international progress. Okay. Um, so we've done pretty well. We have managed to decouple emissions. This is, I think, probably 22% compared to reduction compared to a GDP increase compared to 1990. So you see that looks good too. Um, what you can then look into more detail in the slides that you will get after this presentation is uh, how this has the breakdown of the emission reduction up to 2012. You can see on the right hand column here, the far right hand one, that there was a certain decrease in GDP because of the recession. But actually the main reasons why we managed to cut, continue to cut emissions was that the carbon intensity and the energy intensity dropped. And this is the indirect result of policies, especially fuel substitution and increased use of renewables. And this trend has continued as far as we can see after 2012. The monitoring reporting system I told you about, it's very important as a key for uh, following, accounting for what we're doing. The feedback we got from stakeholders when preparing for the next batch of proposals, you remember we have set a 40% reduction target for 2030 is that uh, they like this approach and it also has the indirect positive effects that it makes member states more aware of uh, their mitigation potential, these national targets that they need to think about 
uh, what sector to focus on, what measure to focus on, start to think about costs and compare them to other options. Um, so uh, this concept of binding national targets and regular reporting uh, is generally seen as a very positive way of, of, of doing uh, mitigation policy, and that's why we have a mandate to continue to 2030. Um, a few more important points than before I round off with a few reflections on international is that this trend I told you about in the beginning, that we are, we are starting to integrate climate policy with other policies, especially energy policy, has strengthened very much in the last few years. We now have something called the energy union so in the European Union. For 10, 10 years ago, 10, 12 years ago, it would not have been feasible because member states were very sensitive about the energy sector. That was a national interest. That was nothing for the EU to, to uh, dabble around in. The big shift that, a big, uh, the, the important thing happened in two, the winter 2006-2007 that changed the mindset completely, especially among the newer member states to the east. And that was that Russia shut off the gas uh, pipeline to Ukraine. And Ukraine is the transit of gas uh, transport for most of the gas imports to Central and Eastern Europe. So they had a very cold winter, and that focused minds. And all of a sudden, the EU had a mandate to start looking into climate energy as well. That's another political reason why we had a climate and energy package in 2008 agreed within one year, and why we now talk about the energy union, and why we talk about the energy and climate framework 2030. Until 2009, it was climate, climate, climate. From 2009 and onwards, sorry, from 2007 and onwards, because we had the council decision, we have climate and energy integrated. And it's really come to stay. It has really come to stay, this integrated approach. And you can see here and read then at your own leisure later on that uh, we have now very ambitious initiatives to continue with this approach for 2030. And this is what I wanted to slowly show you. This is also one of the few slides you can pick up if there are, say, five or six you want to focus on after this presentation of mine. And you can see a very nice comparison then. You don't mind the interconnection that is about grids. To the left, the, the three uh, parts on renewable energy and efficiency in greenhouse gas emissions, you can see how we're stepping up to 2030. And you can see that the step up is more ambitious for emission reductions than for renewables. And there is a history behind that, but I will not go into that now. And the energy union governance basically now covers, we're going from a monitoring reporting of only climate emissions and policies to an integrated reporting system of energy action, renewables share, and so on. And this will put a lot of uh, challenges to member states to integrate their national administrations in terms of reporting of climate and energy, like we have ha are having, like we are doing now in the European Commission where I work. Um, these are some things then you can look into more in more detail uh, on our very interactive these days web sites. And voila, I round off the few more minutes I have. You see, I would have to be, I would have to use flexibilities or be subject to a penalty if we would have applied our own system on my talk today. So I also have something to learn, it seems. From the beginning, ta-da. We don't have sanctions, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
Well, I, I got no sugar in my tea, so I had to pay. Okay, you see, happy faces, 2015. What I under, uh, perhaps what I should have talked about a bit more today, and I apologize that I couldn't cover that, but you will have these slides, it's two, because this is actually the third slide set that you will get. It's a very nice overview of what happened in Paris 2015 and what the real story behind Paris is. And you can imagine the surprise of us and others when the United States administration decided to pull out of something where they don't have any obligations, basically, whatsoever, uh, if I oversimplify it. So strange things happen. Because in the, what we didn't manage to do before, uh, we managed to do now. You see, we have this story, and uh, there are still people who don't like it, kind of, bottom line. Uh, you see here, this is nice because it's a kind of parallel. You can, you can plot, you know, if you like, the table I showed you in the very beginning, what we've been doing since 91 through 2016, against this one, starting out with Rio de Janeiro, UNFCC agreement, and then the different protocols, and Paris. And Paris is really a breakthrough because it allows all kind of member states, uh, member states, all kind of countries, parties in the world to do things according to their own priorities, their own conditions. It's a very loose system. Uh, the reason why the EU could accept is that it is based on a transparent reporting and monitoring system where we are trying to convince the world, especially developing countries, uh, because other developed countries uh, do have monitoring and reporting systems. The United States has a very good monitoring reporting system, Canada, etc., etc. But the emerging economies and developing do not. And that is key to keep track of what's happening in terms of emissions and to decide on what actions, policy decisions, what cost-effective more or less actions you might do. Um, so we, okay, we had to show the, the final bullet, of course, great example of EU unity leadership. Uh, because we were very happy with this. Nobody thought we would get an agreement. We got it. Uh, and uh, it is indeed very open-ended. And it, we have, I think, internationally agreed to a process. We now have a process in place. We will get a lot of criticism of all the holes and things that are not covered, international maritime, international aviation, etc., etc. But we now have a global consensus on how to go about to discuss these things. That's the, the good good uh, news. And my final two, three points would be then that what I've been very focused on what are we doing, what I'm doing, my work, so EU, uh, as an example of what can be done. And I think I hope for you, despite being, you know, uh, overrun with all these slides and all these facts, you will get a taste of what actually is happening in another set of states, member states, who are very different, you know, uh, conditions and what we managed to agree and how we go about it. So that was the, you know, my aim. But internationally, what has perhaps not come through very good in my talk today, or strongly enough, is that everything we do, we do against the international backdrop, against the uh, UNFCCC and the protocols and now the Paris Agreement. And I think it's, at least in this context, fair to say it was a great example of EU leadership because the EU worked very hard behind the scenes to engage developing countries and emerging countries. I think personally that the United States and China, the agreement they got bilaterally to work for Paris Agreement was extremely important too. But the EU as it bests have an enormous amount of resources internationally because we have three big colonial powers. France, or ex-colonial I should say, France, United Kingdom and Spain. 
And in modern diplomacy, this means that they have very good networks in the Francophone part of the world, Western Africa, other parts of the world. The Spain works very well with Latin America. UK has the Commonwealth. And we have Germany, which has a lot of money, uh, which supports a lot of action developing countries together with a number of other member states. And when we take all these resources together and go out on the international scene and start to negotiate and have a dialogue with parties, that has an effect. And I think it, it came to a very good effect at the Paris Agreement. Uh, so uh, there, a very diversified union who disagrees about a lot of things can actually show uh, a lot of uh, international action because we then have an e economic union of 500 million people and the combined resources of 28 member states behind us. So uh, I think it's fair to say that uh, Paris Agreement in that sense was a big success. Now there are enormous challenges to deliver what's in the Paris Agreement and that's where I'm going to stop I think. I will just highlight then that if you then want to read more Paris Agreement, I hope it will be helpful. This is actually a very good slide set put together by my colleagues working on the international uh, unit at my uh, workplace. And you can see basically in an in a easy to understand, easy to read way what the Paris Agreement is all about, really. Uh, and again, I think I'll stop here. Uh, I think I learned a lesson, and that is I will adapt my presentation next time, time-wise <laughs> and slide-wise. I thank you for uh, putting up with me, talking non-stop for all this time, and I wish you uh, great success in your studies. Whatever you're going to do, this I can tell you, you're going to deal with climate change in one way or another. Whatever you choose is a career, as I can promise you. Uh, and I wish you good success with that, and thanks for uh, listening to me today.